welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best of season six, second half. That's it. 2022. Yeah. Cheers, mate. Oh, yeah. Cheers. That sounds like an alcoholic cheers, but a water cheers. This might be the... Could be either the best, best of ever, or the the lamest, because it's a, a sober Friday morning one as opposed to a Saturday evening one. Well, you've been off the booze still for a little bit. I reckon a couple of months now, yeah. A couple of months now, mate. And I, I had a six week stint off as well. Yeah. Then I came came back hard. <laughs> Overcorrected. Overcorrected the other way. So, but yeah, with some uh, some uh, scheduling stuff on our side, it's not our usual. Uh, drink, record, and then party. It's more just a drink, uh, coffee, and water, and then get back to work. <laughs> Mate, I think you're just losing the listeners. You're not really selling this episode. Oh, yeah. The ones who tune in. I reckon it. this this could be the tightest best of ever in terms of uh, bang for buck. Mm. Uh, less sloppy than usual. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how we go in that sense, mate. As per our usual uh, cadence that we just made up out of nowhere, we uh, finish now, have a month off. We're back with Juggernaut July, 1st of July. We've got some juggers coming. Um, so between now and then, in that month off, there's some other content you can check out from the boys at What You Will Learn. Yeah, of course. The shit they never taught you for those who haven't bought this book yet. Uh, we've got some awesome re- reviews of it. And I'd say from book sales point of view, it's definitely at the very higher end out of uh, out of what we really hoped for. So um, we're super appreciative of everyone who bought the book. It is uh, probably the best way you can support the podcast and also get the best content that we've produced uh, out of us at the same time. Massively, man. 674 pages thereabouts. I forget the exact stats. 32 lessons, 115 books, all mushed into one massive behemoth of literally the shit they never taught you. Literally the stuff where we thought, we're reading a book and we thought, why the bloody hell didn't someone teach us this sooner? Then we whacked it all into one book. So you can get 115 plus of those different realizations all in one hit. Yeah, and that realization's happened too many times over this six-year journey. Um, so you can get that on Audible, Kindle, uh, wherever you buy your, your print books online as well. So everywhere. Yeah, that's it. The shit they never taught you.com should point you in, in the right direction to, to buy it, check it out. It's a phenomenal book. Yes, if we say so ourselves, right. mate. <laughs> All right, fantastic, mate. Yeah, the best of. So I guess we go. We normally go through our top tens, ten through one. We're somewhat getting closer. Uh, we had two bang on identical placings this time in the top ten, which which is um, uh, a rarity. We also had four in common from the top ten, but <laughs> I reckon we're also getting further apart. Three of my top five, nowhere near your top ten, and and four of your top five, nowhere near my top ten. So. Mm. It is sort of five to ten range where we're kind of similar, but the the five to one range where we're miles apart. Yeah, it's a, it'll be interesting to have someone diagnose. Maybe people who can email us what they think of podcasts at whatyouwillearn.com. <laughs> if they think it's an IKEA effect, because we've got captains of each episode who take the episode and mm. you know polish it enough and sculpt it, and they've got a lot of ownership on that and yep. compared to the other person, or it might be just based on interest. So, yeah. if anyone hears inconsistencies in what we like, uh, let us know <laughs> because we, you can feel free to call us out on our own bullshit. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of bullshit. That's for sure. There's a lot of bullshit. Any uh, any honorable mentions? Uh, well, we've got one here. I had Surrounded by Idiots. I think when, we, when I was reading it, I messaged you saying, hey, this is the best personality book I've ever come across by mm. far out of all of them. Yeah. But the good thing about doing this best of episode is you have a little bit of time in between reading it <laughs> and you you get to feel like what gave you a lasting impression. So I think what we rated the book out of 10 at that time compared to a few months later, it does change. Mm-hmm. And this book's got no lasting impression on me. Yeah. So it true. didn't um it didn't it didn't make a top ten. I said it was the probably the fourth best of the four personality type books that we'd done. I think Gretchen Rubin's one I preferred, the four tendencies, big big Rick, the first one we did the how to deal with people you can't stand. Is that what it's called? Yeah, it was. Dealing with people you can't stand. I, I preferred those. I, I kind of remember those ones, but also it was probably because I read those ones first, mm. but I just didn't remember these ones. The red, green, blue, what was what? You've got one? Yeah, the Six Thinking Hats. It was it was originally 10, but I dropped it out. Uh, it's now an honorable mention. I just thought it was, you know, it was, it was, it was good, but, you know, it was like a 50, 60-year-old book about the six different ways you need to think, especially if you're in a meeting, but... Yeah, it was all right. I think it's a very influential book on the world outside mm. of uh, outside of us for project management teams, and it's very rare for like companies to take a step back and actually strategically uh, 
you know, do something like put the mm. different thinking hats on to have different ideas and be a bit more critical of things and also be a bit more creative and blue sky thinking. So, that just doesn't happen. So, I think mm. if people use it, um, you can get a lot of value out of that. Totally. Point. Yeah, I remember from, I reckon I was like year three or year four in school when my teacher was talking about it. That's where it, I remember it. So, it's, it definitely had a big impact, I guess, uh, far reaching. But yeah, you're right. I think people just... They don't bother with the, the white, red, black. They yeah. just go straight emotion. Whatever straight, they are. Yeah. Yeah, whatever whatever color they are in yeah. the surrounded by idiots. <laughs> That's oh, right. Term. That's right. So, let's go top 10. And, mate we're, mate, we're in sync here. Both of our number 10, screw it. Let's do it. That's it. I always call it screw it just to I know. And I edit it every time. Does that happen every <laughs> <Yeah>. time? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's really... Uh, I think it's really helpful to get an insight into someone's brain as crazy as Richard Branson. I think we said in the episode, out of every 100 Richard Bransons, probably, what, 94 of them are dead right now. He gets on hot oh, air yeah. balloon uh, rides without any experience. He's trying to yeah. go to space. He's speed, speedboat racing. Speedboat racing. He's a, he's, a wild, <laughs> he's a wild, wild man. Um, and, you know, 94, maybe five are failures and they never made the money to, to be able to do that yeah, shit. Yeah, they're bankrupt. Yeah, they're bankrupt sure. and then you got one Richard Branson. Who I think one in a hundred is even too high. Yeah. It could be like one in 10,000. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you get to- He's done well. He's done well. Well, that's why you got to take a pinch of salt of narrative fallacy because we're hearing from that one in 10,000 when you read this book and when someone who condones such wild risk-taking, yes, it can work in some contexts, but I think that's what- uh, that dose of reality we also got to take in. That's right, yeah. I liked reading the early business stories of him when he was like a 15-year-old kid and doing magazines and trying to get interviews with people and then a few of his dodgy things as well, trying to dodge some tax and doing a little lap around the the uh, import facility just to get his stamp and then straight back out and eventually got nabbed by the by the cops. Um, mm. I thought it was, it was good to read that sort of stuff as well. I agree. The general feeling I got from the book was just uh, go out there and have fun. Yeah. <laughs> if, things are, if things are boring, which is I think true for anyone, whether you're Branson or you're working in an office or whatever, if you're not having fun, like, what's mm. the point? Like Life's too short to just not enjoy what you're doing. So quit, take a risk and, and try something new. Yeah, totally. That's a big Branson. Mate, your number nine is is coming up later for me. So my number nine was How the Mighty Fall by Jim Collins. And uh, I reckon a big reason of that, obviously Jim Collins has written two of the biggest business books ever, Built to Last and Good to Great. And then uh, a couple of years later, the Built to Last companies didn't last and the Good to Great companies weren't good anymore or they weren't even great. So they uh, they kind of died. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, okay, well, this is interesting. Okay, what's how's Jim going to save this one? Mm. Well, what's the, the meta conclusion you have with all three? Every company just dies? <laughs> I think the meta conclusion is it doesn't really matter what books you read. You're either going to do well or even if you do do well, maybe you're eventually going to cark it. But uh, just good luck to you. <laughs> That's kind of it, I reckon. Well, uh, I think the five stages of decline. I like how he just pulls it into a big framework. Um, probably one <laughs> similar to another one of your favorite authors, uh, Jared Diamond, where he takes a lot of complexity and brings it into a, a framework, oh, which yeah. we'll talk about <laughs> a little bit later. <laughs> But the, I really like what it, the framework he's come up with because it is somewhat uh, actionable and I think somewhat quite believable and mm. very simple what you take away from the book. Um, what's your favorite of the five there? I think the undisciplined pursuit of more is uh, is a good one. Obviously, you've got, you've got these successful companies that say, okay, we're awesome at this one thing. Let's go out and do 10 more things and we're going to be awesome at all of them. Uh, that's probably a quick way to, to become one of these how the mighty fall type of companies. I think it applies to the personal life as well. The undisciplined pursuit of more, 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 I reckon that's a quick way to, to fall. Mm, yeah. Uh, I really like this one. Probably grasping for salvation for me. Um, mm. I know I always talk a lot about you know, getting on Tesla, but this hearing the, the other automotive companies sort of uh, some of their quotes and reading this book at the same time, mm. like, oh, I'm going to double down on Tesla still. <laughs> we're going to go harder. We're going we're gonna to F all the other investment books where it talks about diversification. We're going hard on this one stuff. Man, hopefully uh, you didn't do that just before uh, buying Twitter. What was the go there? Um, Tesla stock dropped 30% a yeah, day, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it happened, mate. It's, uh, <laughs> it was a volatile role for me and uh, me and Corey had to sell a few things in the house. And <laughs> <laughs> mate, did you, uh, did you buy back in, buy the dip after the 30% drop post-Twitter? or Planning on it, mate, planning on it. <laughs> I, I, was already, I already had every spare cent in them, so there was no, uh, there was no cash buffer. Oh, Again, right. not following the advice of our own books. <laughs> That's right. Uh, mate, you're number eight. Donut Economics by Kate Reworth. 
Now, this is a, a phenomenal concept, also super powerful outside of just, you know, individuals reading this book. If you've ever been to a sustainability conference, everyone who's doing a keynote speaker just seems to just reference this book because mm. it is a totally new painting of uh, what the future could be and how we can live uh, in accordance with nature. And the donut concept, it's quite good. Um, so, do you want to hit us with a donut? Mate, you hit us. It's been too long. I don't really remember the donut. Okay. <laughs> well, well, this one had an impression like on you, you, didn't it? <laughs> I remember, like, if you think of, like, the shape of a donut, you can be too low, but you can also be too high. You need that nice middle ground. Well, that's right. So, the low, we want to... Uh, so, she, like some environmentalists, she doesn't want to deny uh, what humans need, and we do need to take a lot of things from the environment in order to just get to a a basic level of satisfaction and comfort without chasing your hedonism just, you know, mm. through the roof like we are today. And to a point of the upper limit of the donut is what the environment can actually give us. So, of the things we need, things like food, clean water, access to energy, clean cooking, uh, access to education and healthcare, decent housing, minimum income, decent work, uh, access to networks, information, and social support, which still not everyone in the world has right now. Yeah, exactly. So we need to uh, lift them up, but at the same time, not take too much. Mm. And I do remember the, you know, the, most of the economic goals uh, from the big politicians generally tie back to yeah, let's grow the economy, let's grow the economy, let's grow the economy, and that's that's kind of it. That's, that's it. it. Let's just grow for two two to three percent every single year and grow, 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 and that's kind of as far as the thinking goes, but you can't just grow at 2% forever, can you? No, no. Uh, yeah, you, there is limits to growth, referencing another <laughs> yeah. book there. Um, and it's not a very intelligent sounding goal, is it? Just the no. one the one goal, GDP, that's all it's about. <laughs> uh, no nuance whatsoever, nothing else really matters. Yeah. It reminds me of one of our uh, marketing clients. I don't think he listens. Anyway, he was like, yeah, we had a Mate, I've, 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 I've done that before <laughs> yeah. and I got caught out. So, you'll never know who's going to be listening. But go ahead anyway. anyway he's like, so. oh, we had, a, we had a good year in, uh, in like FY21. So, let's for FY22, let's copy paste the, the budget and let's just grow by 50%. It was so like just everything went up by 50%. And yeah. coming to the end of FY22, uh, not even close. <laughs> Hey, spreadsheets are powerful. <laughs> spreadsheets yeah. are powerful. If your only goal is to grow, then uh, yeah, you got you got to sort of think a bit, bit beyond that. Okay, moving on now. Number eight. Uh, yeah, the psychology of money for me. Now, interesting. I so I actually did uh, after I'd finished reading all the, the books for the year, which was a little while ago. I sort of did my ten through one, and this one wasn't even an honourable. But when I sort of a bit of space and thought back, I was like, actually, this is pretty good. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty good. Well, we've got these hard sort of rules and and things to follow when it comes to trying to make money, how to invest, how to save money, and all that. But really, it comes down to the psychology of money a lot of the time. And I think um, the hardest one, perhaps for me and for everyone, is to make the goalpost stop moving mm. because once you hit a target and your goal. That that goalpost you saw and you finally reach, you don't just uh, admire the view and just hang there the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, that's that just right. the goalpost keeps moving, yeah, um, uh, forever indefinitely. Yeah, that's right. I think that's uh, the toughest one. He calls it the the hardest financial skill. He says it's not really about the making money. It's not really about saving. The thing is, like, as soon as you you achieve what you want to achieve, and there's just another goal just around the corner. You're going to shift it that little bit further. If you look back, your your 18 year old self would think you're killing it. Uh, whereas when you're the, your 35 year old self, then you've just got so many more goals way ahead of you, you're nowhere near where you want to be. So, making those goalposts stop is a, is a pretty important financial skill. One of the uh, goalposts, if there's four of them, one of them is definitely the idea of status and mm. buying those status symbols to show off to everybody. I think everyone's got that little bit of human nature where they want to want to do a bit of that but another uh important thing from the psychology of money is the man in the car paradox because when you buy that thing that status symbol you're thinking hey i'm killing it right? i'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, killing right. it i'm driving a nice car here <laughs> driving up to chapel street doing some yeah. chap laps and looking at all the young lasses yeah trying to trying to <laughs> nod your head to, to some rhythmic beat that's right you're driving your ferrari and you're thinking everybody's looking at me and thinking how cool am i yeah, <laughs> but nobody's thinking that dude in that Ferrari is so cool. All they're thinking is, man, that's a nice Ferrari. If I was driving that Ferrari, everybody would think I'm so cool. Yeah, <laughs> so it doesn't really work. Nobody's thinking about the, the the guy in the car. Everybody's thinking about the car and thinking about them in that car. Yeah, 
So yeah, it's a it's a real paradox there that that uh, even when you achieve those uh, big status symbols and maybe you've taken out to you know a hundred grand out of your mortgage to buy this big status symbol, no one actually cares. Everyone's just thinking about themselves. Yeah, there's a lot of effing around to get to that car, <laughs> mate. My number seven. I reckon. Sorry, I reckon this one. Going. If I had to read this four years earlier, it could be my you know top ten books. I reckon. I think it was just because it was probably the fifth or sixth personal finance book that we'd read. But I reckon this is I reckon it's a good entry point. If someone hadn't read too many personal finance books, I reckon this is a good place to start. Yeah, the timing of when you read a book is always uh, a very big deal. Yeah. Number seven for me, uh, the goal. Probably one of those books that when you've read so many books on productivity and getting production done and everything like that, you do feel like you've read it before. So having it come from a different uh, area, in this case manufacturing, because I think manufacturing is a pretty cool metaphor for your own productivity or at the personal level or at a, at a business level because at the end of the day, you know, there's a whole bunch of processes that you're following uh, in order to have some output and finished goods. Um, I know this is one of your <laughs> – this this didn't feature very well for you this year, Ashto. Not in the top 10, but uh, it was mainly because, I don't know, it was just a very – very long book. Uh, the fable style didn't really get me. I'm going to uh, counteract that later in my own top 10 and get a sneaky little fable in there as well. <laughs> but I, I did like the three things to measure. Uh, and if I can remember, like inventory, throughput, and operating expenses. And thinking, how can you convert your uh, inventory through to throughput <laughs> basically you got all this stuff to do so yeah operational <laughs> operational expense is the money the system spends in turning inventory to throughput mm-hmm. so yeah the goal is uh profitability and making money um sounds like a pretty you know un-Simon Sinecki goal. And very not donut economics, is it? <laughs> very not donut. But at the end of the day, if an organization isn't making money or a profit and that profit, you know, the word profit might be uh, analogous to something else at you know, the personal level or whatever, but they're the three ways to measure it. And I'd say the overarching way to uh, increase your throughput whilst reducing inventory and reducing operational expenses at the same time is to focus on your herbies or your <laughs> focus on your uh, bottlenecks in the system. So Herbie being this little fat kid who went on a walk and uh, they were all, all in single file. I've been accused of fat shaming a few times, but that's that's the book. Uh, <laughs> that's how the book book um, phrases it. But if you focus on your bottlenecks, they're the limiting factor in your system. So you can really overinvest into your bottlenecks and you'd be surprised that uh, how much your throughput increases and how much it's worth actually investing all your money specifically mm. in these areas. Because I think a lot of people um, just look at the expense itself and yeah. think, oh, we're raising, uh, you know, it's going to cost 10% of, of what the factory costs are or something. Yeah, I think a lot of people are building up their inventory, thinking they're working hard, but they're not actually getting to that end result of actually bringing the thing to life. They're just building up inventory and they're just kind of stockpiling, stockpiling, stockpiling because there's some bottleneck somewhere stopping you from getting to that end point. So, you've got to identify those bottlenecks. Yeah, so you can use, I think you can apply this in the episode. We applied it to our podcast, applied it to writing a book, you know, all sorts of different areas, which uh, yeah, I think you need to do sometimes when you're reading a fable you need to somehow translate it and take a step back and translate it into some sort of real-world uh, practicalities. Main number seven was the, I think it was the, the, the final book that we did, How to Change by Katie Milkman. Uh, and it was basically just saying, if, you know, if you've ever tried to change something big in your life, you know that it's bloody hard and you know there's a lot of advice out there. There's plenty of TED Talks, plenty of books, uh, plenty of podcasts that, that try to tell you how to change stuff, maybe this one included. But, you know, we don't really change, even with all this information. And so, one answer is that change is hard, which yes, it is. But there's also another answer and it's that you are probably doing a bit of a one-size-fits-all approach. We say, here's how you change. Whereas, we're not actually thinking, okay, what's my specific problem and what's the specific solution to this? So, this book went through, what, six or seven or eight different specific problems and how you can solve those to actually make the change. Yeah, so yeah, we, not many books go to that meta level on how to change. It's almost too obvious a thing in self-help sometimes and um, so she did break it down, give different strategies. Started the book, she opened the book with a pretty phenomenal story and sounded, <laughs> I was really riveted and, and right in there and then um, that story <laughs> didn't really lead anywhere, did it? No, end? she had the metaphor of like the tennis players and how, uh, I forget to, I think it was probably Agassi and... It's like she, her first draft of the book had that awesome metaphor and yeah. then the second to third draft, like the, the linking to that metaphor 
slowly <laughs> disappear. But you're like, no, we're not going to get rid of that metaphor. So yeah. it was a great story and a great metaphor. Uh, but um, yeah, <laughs> it kind of dropped away. But I thought there was, a, there was a couple of good things in there about specific things and specific changes that you can make. So I thought, yeah, it deserves a, a spot in the top 10. Moving on, number six. Mate, we're back in sync. In sync. There you go. Cheers. Cheers. I cracked uh, If you heard a can cracking before, it wasn't an alcoholic can. It was a, uh, <laughs> a lemon-flavored mineral water. It's gone down well. Yeah. Anyone listening right now, feel free to uh, email podcast.com if you want to see Ashto piss at the next one or you prefer sober Ashto for these episodes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm wasted, six- mate. I'm wasted. It's not water in this podcast. In, the, uh, in six months' time, we, we'll find out if we're still on the, the soda waters or if on the, the vodka sodas. Yeah. Uh, number six, positioning. Yeah, Al Rees and Jack Trout, the guys that brought us uh, 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. Uh, and this is one of those probably you know, core marketing classics from 40 years ago. I probably should have read sooner because there's, there's some good stuff in there. Mm, it is. I think uh, a lot of uh, inspiration from other authors are drawn from this book um, specifically. I think a lot of Seth Godin he takes from these guys for sure, Definitely. right? When yeah, it comes to so. finding a niche and finding... Uh, being first in a category because I think we might be, we might be stealing from their other book, but once you're <laughs> first in a category, you're first to mind. And once you first, oh, here we go, easiest way into the mind. That's it. Um, and once your mind pops up into something, if you're first in that category, then you're going to probably get that sale um, disproportionately. That's right. So their, their previous book was talking about, yeah, you want to be first if you're not first and you've got to find a new category to be first in, you know, making a smaller and smaller and smaller category that you can be the first one in. This one was uh, not different. Obviously, they're not, not saying that's not the way to do it, but they're saying, okay, well, if you're not first, how else can you get in? And they sort of had two solutions. One is like they say that the ladders, like everybody's got little ladders inside their brain for each category. Like you've got your ladders of different chocolate brands. You've got some at the top, some in the middle, some real stinkers at the bottom. You can position yourself next to somebody on the ladder to try to knock them off their perch. So rather than just trying to ignore the ladder and say, you know, we're the best chocolate ever, you've got to try to find a, a spot on that ladder that you can knock somebody else off. The other one is finding that hole, that crenou, uh, and finding that super small crack where you can get in there and fill that niche. Yeah, so this can be applied in the business context, uh, finding a niche in a product and uh, it goes through different beers, for example. I mean, who was the first beer? That If that category has been taken, who's the first light beer that's been taken? Then who's the first uh, international European beer in your country? Because you're always going to have that um, hipster loser who just rocks up to the party and has this, this beer from this um, random country that no one's ever seen to try and uh, <laughs> own that category and be that little bit different. Mm. And, you know, that person's choosing that category, the thing that makes them represent as a different person. Also, in a career context, right, like finding uh, if you've got 15 people on the team and if you're a generalist, it's got some uh, advantages to it. But if you own a certain category with certain mix of skills maybe – then when a project pops up, you're going to be the first in mind and probably going to be winning uh, whatever that opportunity is disproportionately as well. Yeah, yeah, love it. Into our top fives, mate. Number five for you. Number five for me uh, and number 259 for you. <laughs> Maybe lower. <laughs> uh, uh, Upheaval by Jared Diamond. Uh, I think, yeah, I think with all of his books having some context in history i mean you take like we were saying before you're taking something extremely complex and boiling it down into a framework there's going to be some interpretation in there um but i think his overarching lessons from from history in all of his books definitely stick with me i mean guns germs and steel there's five or six things that just you'll never forget and, and a bit of a framework but here specifically it does look at a whole bunch of different countries um and uses like a, a personal uh, crises as a metaphor and getting over personal crises as a metaphor for how countries can. I think that metaphor it translates pretty well, pretty mm-hmm. high high strike rate. And one's really, really pertinent right now and that was when Finland went to war with the Soviet Union uh, and how they uh, won that war without compromising on their values. But then over time, how they actually compromised the right amount uh, against the Soviet Union and the Russians at the time. So they had a close enough tie-in with them that they weren't pissing them off enough. I mean, they share a huge border with them. Finland's mm. a tiny country uh, and has no uh, comparison militarily. But at the same time, having their ties with the West and having capitalism and everything like that. 
And because of that, they've maintained relationships on both ends and, you know, because I think absolutely sticking to certain values uh, stubbornly is probably a risk for countries and probably for risk for individual people as well. At the same time, overcompromising and just uh, doing whatever the other person says, that's also a risk. You need to find that right balance between sticking to your guns uh, but compromising the right amount, which Finland seemed to do uh, pretty well just after the Second World War, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. Similar ones. Uh, so, I think there was other, yeah, in the book, you got Chile, which uh, went through like a, a left versus right sort of oscillation where it went more extreme with each oscillation, probably analogous to today in the West and uh, also one on Australia, just um, us struggling to find our identity, which I still think is, is very relevant when we're you know, entrenched in Asia, but we've still got our uh, British roots and colonial roots as well. So, there's a bit of an unknown there. Yeah, for sure. I, this is probably my least least favorite Jared Diamond so far. I just I felt the he had twelve. I think it was twelve. Like his framework was twelve. I think collapse was five or six. Five or six seems more manageable than the twelve. Uh, but yeah, it was. You know, I'm glad you enjoyed it. That's that's <laughs> all I can say. <laughs> yeah. No, that's 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 totally fine, mate. We know you're a diamond. And uh, that's how we're going to we're going to be redoing all three. Yeah, three, all, all three in uh, one one big seven hour episode. Yeah, that's just for you, mate. Just for you. You're going to be so up and about for that one, uh, mate. Probably no, will, we'll probably will turn you back to the drink. Yeah, that's right. We'll be back on the the drunk episodes. That's for sure. Uh, my f- number five: Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by uh, Dr. Susan Jeffers. And uh, I think when I first read this, it took me a while to get into it, but I think the first two chapters, when you look back on it, were, were pretty solid. And what she did was she started with everybody's got so many different fears. Um, on the level one, the bottom level, we've got all these, or, or the surface level, I guess, we've got all these fears of different things that happen to us, like fear of aging, becoming disabled, being alone, war, death, illness, change, all these things. That we're also afraid of all these things that require action. We're afraid of making decisions, changing careers, making new friends, driving, public speaking, job interviews, losing weight. They're all these like surface level fears, which every you could list hundreds of them. Everybody's got their own fears. What she did then was she was like, okay, well, all of these, we can kind of group them up a bit. If we dig one level deeper, there's only about 10 uh, or so real sort of level two fears. And she said they're the fear of rejection. So that can manifest in different level one fears, whether it's a job interview, whether it's going on a date in all different realms. So you've got rejection, success, failure, being vulnerable, being conned, being helpless, um, disapproval, loss of image. There's there's the, like the handful of level two fears, which from you can pretty much group all the level one fears into those. And then she was like, well, you know what? If we drill even one layer deeper than that, there's actually only one fear that captures every single fear. And that's the fear that you can't handle it. You know, So if you think of the fear of rejection from not getting a job, that's the fear that you can't handle being unemployed for a little while or you can't handle the fact that you're never going to get another job again. But uh, Or if you think of... Uh, what's another one? Loss of image. You you say something stupid and people laugh at you. Yeah, <laughs> and you you fear that you can't handle that sort of embarrassment. So really, uh, if you capture all these fears, boil down to the fact that you can't handle it. There's actually only one solution. You don't have to conquer every single fear out there. You just have to conquer the fact that you think you can't handle it, and that's by getting better, I guess. <laughs> Improve yourself. To the point where you can handle it. Realize that you can handle anything that gets thrown your way. Yeah, that's it. Just beginning by just developing trust in yourself. That's a that's a very uh, very hard to argue against how she um, led to that because when you think about it, it's one hundred percent true. I think, right? So yeah. that that one belief. I mean, when uh, I don't know how you developing yourself is one thing. Positive self talk might uh, also help in something like this because. The end of the day, like whatever the worst things that's ever happened to you, you probably did handle it if you look yeah. back on it retrospectively. <laughs> exactly. One, you might have handled it poorly. I'm not saying you handled it well. <laughs> you might have uh, started crying when people uh, bagged you in, in, in a meeting or something, and and ran away and uh, screamed and sque- squealed. But that's no, not handling it. Handling <laughs> it. But if you think of uh, public speaking, I think is a big one for most people. Uh, but if you think of it, like. If you put yourself out there and, and practice more and try to get better, then you probably can handle it and you can do well at public speaking. But also, if you don't do well, then you build up that you can handle it because, okay, what happens if it doesn't do well? Some people think a little bit less of you. Some people laugh at you. But at the end of the day, you can handle it because you're on to the next thing. Moving on to number four, 
uh, Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. We did two books by uh, this this mm. dude this season, and um, obviously I was impressed by the first one, so I started reading the second one. I'll probably read his full catalogue at some stage, I think. What else has he got? Has he got more? Well, we, I think he um, cashed in on this one oh, a few yeah. times. The Innovator's a- Solution. Yeah. <laughs> it's a Dilemma's Solution. <laughs> the Innovator's Dilemma's Nightmare. Or, uh, there's about 10 of them, I think, so might be a few more of them. But I think above all else, this book is... It's actually a story of David and Goliath and uh, how the big tech companies are taken, oh, not tech necessarily, but all the big companies are taken down, taken down by small uh, new starts. So, you know, big Goliath got all the resources, big and powerful, um, probably struggles with inertia and speed and nimbleness and looks at down on David. It's like a little ant and all the things that David does in his life, hey, it's not even worth thinking about. Uh so I think from two perspectives, it's like how uh, if you are a Goliath, how you can actually protect yourself from the Davids of the world. You might recruit an army of your own little Davids to go out there and do mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, or alternatively, if you're a David, if you're, a, if you're an upstart, what markets you can focus on um, in order to be successful and then probably grow from a David into a Goliath. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Speaking of David and Goliath, maybe that's a Gladwell we should do next season. We haven't done a Gladwell for a while. <laughs> we're due <laughs> we're due man I'm a bit confused by the title The Innovator's Dilemma is the innovator because innovator does well innovator does well it's the dilemma I what's think what's the dilemma post innovation so when the innovator when the David becomes a Goliath there's also from the well innovations in I mean maybe we should break down the David and Goliath story if someone hasn't <laughs> uh, someone hasn't but in terms of the, the business context so there's a lot of examples right but maybe Netflix and uh, Blockbuster is mm-hmm. one. Blockbuster, big billion dollar company, got a lot of retail stores. We can go there and hire it. Uh, Netflix starts with this subscription model, making a very small amount of money um, at, at the very start. Blockbuster, when you're that size, you're looking for 2%, 3%, 4% growth a year mm. to satisfy investors. If you say we're going to be spending our R&D budgets on this little thing, which is 0.0001% of what the company is, this new disruptive technology, which might be, you know, the internet and using the internet for, for, for streaming, they're going to say no. And that's the dilemma. No, none of the opportunities that are disruptive technologies are interesting enough mm. for the big companies and they can't operate in the way that startups can, which is sort of this emergent discovery, organic discovery, trial and error tinkering um, style. And I think that's the dilemma. So, the dilemma is on the big company side that they just structurally cannot take on mm. disruptive technologies. Yeah, the other one we talked about was like Barnes & Noble versus Amazon. Amazon trying to sell books online. Barnes & Noble say, whatever, like nobody's online. Everyone's coming into our bookstores to buy it. So, they didn't bother making an online store. And then we know what happened with Amazon. People did buy online and yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden, they're buying a lot of shit online. A little slingshot <laughs> got through the mask there and took it down, eh? That's right. Poor Barnes & Noble. Number four. So, my number four, something we did... I think must we must have known back in season one. Then this was a little redoer, the richest man in Babylon, about uh, how to make that purse a jingling. Yes, uh, a lot of the personal finance books, including Psychology of Money, um, probably all captured within this one book. You'd say, right? So mm. it's a phenomenal framework of seven different cures for your lean purse, where you've got no gold jingling <laughs> That's in that right. pocket of yours. That's right. I uh, I think again, it probably comes back to was the, the first one of this category that we read. Um, but uh, I think some of the things stick with you. I think it's when it's like something as sort of easy as like, you know, spend less, save more, then uh, it's probably boring if you just had an, a normal standard sort of a book. But having it in this uh, fable style, which I normally hate, kind of made it a bit better, mm. made it a bit more interesting rather than just trying to tell you off, you know, stop buying lattes, go out and save money. Instead, it was through the, told of the ancient Babylonians who were, there was the the cart, the chariot mender and the some dude who was doing clay fences and stuff. And uh, they were all talking about how they uh, didn't have any coins or shekels to jingle in their purse. It's a pretty intelligent metaphor because the, uh, it kind of makes it out like it's a true story. The uh, the actual stones of Babylon with um, <laughs> ancient right. texts. I was googling it and I was like, "Where are these bloody?" I think the first time we read it, you, you didn't realize it wasn't legit. <laughs> no, I thought I, I still thought it was uh, the actual um, the actual stones or whatever. Mm. I think because in, in the postscript he says something like that. 
I think he's just bullshitting. I think he's full of shit. <laughs> but it, it works though because well, bullshit. the point is saying, hey, these are timeless principles. <laughs> it worked for them. They've hung around. A uh, bit of a Lindy effect in there because it's been around so time. We're skinning the game. Um, coming later. <laughs> the, yeah. fir- the first cue is start thy purse of fattening. So that's put more into your purse than you take out. So that's a, that's a pretty obvious one. Only spend money when you can afford it. Don't uh, get those goalposts shifting and keep up with the Joneses and go and buy that Ferrari if you, if you haven't got enough coins in your purse. We'll go through more whilst you started. Con- a second, control thy expenditures. Uh, pretty self-explanatory. Third, uh, make thy gold multiply. So here you go, Astro. Uh, start thy purse by fattening. Ramit Sethi, don't about number two. Number three, all the investing books, Benjamin Graham covered yep. there. Yep. Um, plus your man, uh, what's his name? David Lynch. Fourth, <laughs> guide thy treasure from loss. Probably a unique one here. Yeah, I suppose that's maybe there's maybe there's a gap in the market that we can write a book about that. Get rich. <laughs> Number five, make thy uh, dwelling a profitable investment and in a property you, development book. Yep, yep. I reckon you're falling apart here with the uh, trying to link them back to other books. <laughs> we'll, go, we'll keep going. Number six, ensure future income. I've got nothing to that. Yeah. Number seven, uh, increase the liability to learn. So probably. Yeah, every book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really fell apart quick. So it pretty much covers every book. This this book covers it all. Uh, mate, my number three uh, is coming still to come, which means we must have been, we must have at least had one in common in our top five. Mm. Your number three? Uh, Lying by Sam Harris. Uh, I think it's you could argue again. So, all right. So this, it, it really does present a black and white, uh, description of when it comes to lying. It's like, you know, you got things that are your primary values and then you got your secondary values and your third values. This Brian sets lying at the very top um, mm. that nothing, you should never compromise on lying whatsoever and there's very little nuance when it, when it comes to it and you think, hey, it's bullshit but you read the reasoning in this, it's only 40 pages and by the end of it, you're like, geez, this is pretty hard to come against. <laughs> lying about anything... Um, Leads to bullshit, leads yeah. to crap in your life. Yeah, even white lies. Man, I was surprised to see this at number three. I, feel, I didn't even know. I didn't know you liked it that much when we did it. Well, was uh, it one that just sort of brewed over time? Or yeah, it's what? a brewer. It's a brewer. It's a brewer. Um, because uh, there's probably a few times where I've, yeah, you know, everyone, everyone does those little gray, gray, grayish white lies. But it probably mm. has pulled me in that more direction of just mm. being more uh, honest, brutally honest. Mm. Even when someone says, hey, do I look fat in this dress? Mm. Uh, this is an example from the book, not a personal example. <laughs> yeah. But you know, most people would just say, the correct answer is obviously no. You don't want to hurt feelings. Yeah. Uh, also, you know, people are worried about fat shaming today uh, in very, very... Uh, very. Uh, it's a sensitive issue as very well. Very sensitive though. issue. As, as, as someone that you know, the only person who's going to ask, do I look fat in this dress? Is someone close enough to ask you that? And someone that you don't want to upset as yeah. well, yeah. But if you if you got the honesty in your reply, telling them the truth about what you think, then and, and if you hold that from them, um, and mm. let not honesty actually reach them and truth reach them, then you're actually mm. not helping them out. Yeah. Better way to help them out is to let the truth connect with them because you know there might be a single person who's uh, 34 years old and wants a partner, and you know that's their goal in life, and you you might think, hey, this is holding them back alongside health and all the other benefits that come from um, being healthy and fit, you're, you're really, uh, you're really um, not helping them whatsoever in mm. that sense. So, mm. it's a strong case. What's the correct... What's a, the answer then? Is the answer yes? Well, <laughs> I think... I mean, this is probably where it's very different because Sam Harris, he's the most articulate fella on the planet. <laughs> so, he can dance around these sort of situations with honesty but not be a dick. I think most people like myself without that uh, strong IQ probably couldn't dance around it without being a dick and being truthful <laughs> at the same time. I think I think the answer no is the easy short-term one uh, but doesn't help anybody in the long term. The answer yes uh, too, doesn't leave you much. enough room to maneuver from there either. Yeah, so, you've got to find somewhere in between that it's the, you're not saying no, uh, you're saying yes without saying yes. Uh, <laughs> well, you might say you might you might blame it on the dress. Hey, that dress yeah. probably doesn't. Um, I think that's I think that's a great that's a great first first start. It's like uh, you don't look fat, but it's uh, I've seen you wear better better things or something like that. I think that's a that's an easy first step. Mm. That's an easy first step. 
but it's still not getting to the heart of the issue if they actually are fat. Yeah, and they and they don't want to be fat. Mm. I reckon I reckon you could use some um, some cold reading techniques there, but maybe that comes in season seven. <laughs> I reckon there's some cold reading there. Some of those techniques that you could sort of dance around the the fact and get them to answer their own question. Mm. So you know, and we've we've chosen a pretty touchy subject in, in, in <laughs> when we go on here. We'll probably get a couple of one stars to. Yeah. To, to follow this stuff, got, unfortunately. You got the Herbie and the goal, and now you've got this. You've, yeah, I know. You set us up for failure here. Yeah, there's going to be issues. That was, that was a direct straight out of the book. I'll give you that one. It Not was like a the, the whale at the. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't go there, I show. We're moving on from that one. That was a long time ago. You've, you matured since then. We've matured a lot since our early episodes, I'd say. <laughs> We've been meaning to. Um, <laughs> Uh, self cancels <laughs> a couple yeah. of parts preemptively of get rid of a couple of apps. Yeah, it's probably not a bad idea. It's still sitting there. If anyone's day. curious and wants to, uh, wants to take a step, actually, you should say that. Number two. Yeah, my number three was your number two. So we're, we're, we're quite similar on this one. This is a this is a winner, I thought for sure. Mm. Clayton Christensen is back again. Back again. Hey, is that two of your top four? Yes. Far out. You love this guy. Very different. Uh, very different book, isn't it? Yeah. Very accessible. This writing compared yeah. to the other style. Definitely, yeah. And applies to everyone. Yeah. Um, so what it is it? Oh, haven't we said it? Oh, oh, did we? I don't know. How will you measure your life? Yeah. Clayton Christian, obviously a, a author and a, a business analyst, and he applies business metaphors. Uh, to the personal life, mm. so your personal life having different resources. Personal. You might call this the uh, the reverse reverse diamond. Diamond went personal to country level, and Christensen's going from business level to personal level. Yeah, well, it works, doesn't it? I, I yeah, I prefer the going this going direction. the other way. Personal, <laughs> so you got resources, personal time, energy, talent, wealth, and then it's sort of uh, with a limited amount of resources, you've got how you uh, invest them from that point onwards. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you can invest them in a whole bunch of different areas. So, like a business has a choice to invest in different new ideas or different new uh, potential pathways. You also have options and choices where you can invest. You can't invest in everything. You know, it could be raising great children. It could be uh, rewarding relationships with a spouse and other close friends. It could be uh, a strong career. It could be a a, a business uh, in the literal sense. Um, it could be being a, a a contributing member of some kind of community. Like there are all these options that you've got. You can't do them all. If you try to do them all, you're only going to put a, a small little investment into each one and none of them are going to be very fruitful. So you've kind of got to pick and choose where you invest all of those limited resources um, to get you the best bang for your buck. Well, and a lot of the time uh, in your personal life, it might be very tempting to invest in something in the very short term that gets those immediate results. Uh, and usually is career. I think that's mm. the bias a lot of people have. Uh, they want to be successful and they want the status. And then if you overinvest in that area and not your family and and your uh, and your friendships, you might find yourself in a in a very poor place in ten or twenty years' time when the real shit hits the fan in your life. Um, that's really not much to fall back on is career success. Mm. So uh, like the five stages decline, undisciplined pursuit of more. Um, is a real risk in that in that career context. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I thought it was good, and I thought it, there was a bunch of different um, uh, business theories that he applied to life in different. Obviously, that's like you know where do you invest your limited resources? There was another one around um, motivation theory around hygiene factors versus motivators, uh, and using a. There was also another one around deliberate strategy versus emergent strategy. So it was taking all these business concepts and applying them to your personal life and I thought, yeah, I thought it was a winner. Great book. A lot of people loved it as well. It was got a um, fair, bit of, fair bit of traction. If you get a fair bit of feedback, I yeah, highly recommend everyone listening to all the episodes we come back to today. That was, uh, we did a pretty good job with that one. Yeah. Moving on, man. My number two, nowhere near your top 10, Bullshit Jobs. And I thought this was, uh, I thought this was great when I first read this. It was a bit of, a, bit of an eye-opener, a bit of a face slapper. Um, just saying that there's just there's a lot of bullshit out there. There's a lot of jobs that are entirely bullshit um, and there's a lot of parts of most jobs that have got a little bit of bullshit about them as well. And I'm just saying that a bullshit job is some kind of uh, paid employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, um, that even the employee cannot justify their existence uh, and at the same time, they have to kind of feel obliged to pretend that it is important though at the same time because they want to keep their job. They know it's bullshit, but at the same time, they can't tell their boss, hey, this is bullshit. I'm doing nothing all day because mm. they want to keep their job. Yeah, and looking at the the stats, it's huge, isn't it? The amount of uh, 
I think it was. I don't know how he came up with these stats. Yeah, he did some some survey, which is some survey that uh, actually I think it was some other survey. But confirmation yeah. bias and yeah. what he was trying to write a book <laughs> yeah, on. That's, that's right. fair enough, but I think it's I think it's pretty true. Like, it's just more bullshit jobs out there than you think when he goes through the different categories and why they're bullshit, um, and also bullshit within jobs and across jobs as well. Mm. So within your own job, it's probably a lot of bullshit tasks that you're doing. At the end of the day, I think his big vision is is like imagine if we eliminated all the bullshit in the world um, mm. and how much more productive and better the world would be, which yeah. is a pretty strong vision. Yeah, definitely. It's, I suppose it, it sort of somewhat ties back in with yours. There's a lot of people who are spending 40, 45 hours a week on uh, bullshit that maybe they can do what actually needs to be done in 15 hours and they've got to spare 30 hours to invest their resources in, in their other businesses of their life, which is not just their career. Is that golf? Uh, could be, could be. <laughs> That's a skill, yeah. <laughs> could be golf, mate. I think, That's, golf, uh, I think, I think golf is a, it ties in a, a lot of those different things, like those friendships, bit of a, bit of a skill to develop. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> a golf, it's a good one, golf, especially uh, in the post-COVID world. Probably the best mm. thing that ever happened in the world. You could, you could. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I am to one for superlatives. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the best thing that ever happened to the world. The best thing that ever happened. Well, that's a fucking stretch. <laughs> the best thing ever that's ever happened in the entire history. Yeah, there's probably a lot of I other mean, there's things. A, there's a couple of good things that have happened probably in the world. Water hitting the earth. <laughs> abiogenesis. And, and all sorts. Of, but my, my reasoning is for bullshit jobs. For bullshit jobs, right? My reasoning is. I think the the maximizer of bullshit is when you have to be in an office and you got mm. someone looking over your shoulder. Yeah. The whole point is to look busy. Compare that to uh, you can find your own productivity quirks when you're working by yourself at home without anyone looking over your shoulder. You just go out for a walk, do mm. your tasks, go out for a walk, play some basketball outside or something like that and finish early. If you say, hey, this is the hardest thing on the brain it's the dirtiest, ugliest frog I've got for the week. I'm going to just go hard for these three hours and get it done. You're probably going to be more productive in that context than you would be in an office maybe for a couple of days. Mm. And that's what you can optimize for. Definitely. Definitely. Mate, it brings us to our number ones. And I think this has happened before. I'm sure it probably has. But both of our number ones were not in the other person's top tens. Mm. It's happened. Wow. Surely it's happened. It's definitely happened at least one. I don't know about both at the same time, but there you go. Jeez. Yeah, that's uh, that's surprising. Surprising. I thought you, this might have gotten somewhere in it, a few it originally was and it, it got dropped one of those out. ones you knew i was going to get it in so you are no it was in it was in when i first like when i a month ago when i did okay here's here's my top 10 list and it, it was in but mm. it, it dropped out yeah maybe that that time that time which is a good yeah. which the is rever- a good uh the reverse what's the reverse brew so lying wasn't in and then it brewed and it came in and What's the reverse brew? Well, that's uh, that's a very good segue to skin in the game time <laughs> called the Lindy effect because I think uh, I think he does talk about the consequences of of having uh, no skin in the game and uh, you. Went, I think again, I think we danced around. I don't think we ever said oh, what it was or who oh. was playing. <laughs> How many times have I done this? this just, Imagine if it was just man. two two of me doing a podcast <laughs> episode. Pete would be so lost. Mate, what would happen if we were drunk in this app? <laughs> We've done, we've done a, pretty sloppy, about it. A, a pretty sloppy effort for a, a sober episode. Skin in the Game by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Probably is my favorite probably, author. Top two this is probably the, first, the fourth Taleb we've done. Black Swan, Anti-Fragile, Full by Randomness, Skin in the Game. Am I missing any? No, that's about it. And uh, part of the concerto. So all, all four of them really touch upon each other in some sort of way. Uh, but he talks about the problems, what occur in society when people have no skin in the game. Um, for example, say if you've got a, a you know a regulators, government regulators dictating what policies are, but they don't get affected whatsoever by what the policies are and how sometimes it actually doesn't lead to the best outcomes in society. Looking back anciently, they used to have a law which really sold for skin in the game, which I think we've, uh, well, and Nassim thinks we've lost today. That's Hammurabi's law. And this is where, right, if, if a builder builds a house and the house collapses and causes the death of the owner of the house, the builder shall be put to death. Mm. Now, the builder's not going to cut corners. <laughs> that, yeah. I mean, if, you know that, if you know that your neck is on the line, then yeah, you're going to do a bloody good job of building that house. And uh, compare that to today with a lot of the buildings that are going up. <laughs> um, it's quite the opposite. And yeah. there's no skin in the game because there are always loopholes. If a building has all sorts of issues and, and even safety is compromised, 
the builder points the engineer, the engineer points the developer, the developer points the building surveyor, and it goes around. And uh, at the end of the day, no one's got a skin in the game. Mm. Yeah, totally. Um, I thought this is my fourth favorite of the four we've done. I don't know. I don't know if it just didn't uh, it didn't connect as well with you know as Black Swan or Anti Fragile that this one just didn't get me didn't get me going. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it, Ashjo, as yeah. you can tell. But the the biggest one, the biggest takeaway, I think, is uh, the the solution of what the best the best ideas in the world, the best uh, whatever, name it X, and it's through two things. It's things having skin in the game, so touching the ground and having consequences for action mm-hmm. and the Lindy effect, so uh, time. So, if things have been around for long enough and have uh, the ability to be scrutinized, then it's going to get more true than the rest of it. Um, yeah, so they're the best things in the world. So, you can't, you couldn't say that COVID was the best thing that ever happened to the world because it doesn't have the Lindy effect yet. Is that right? <laughs> well, I'll give you... Oh, I'll you might have gone early on that, I reckon. I'll give you... Did I say best in the world again? Best, no, yeah, no, you said the best The best whatever comes from a Lindy effect. I'll give effect. you... Here we go. Yeah. Here, religions. Religions. So, uh, uh, Buddhism, it, 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 it invites scientific thinking and it evolves with science. So, science being skin in the game with, with Buddhism and Buddhism's been around for 2,000 years. So, uh, not every religion uh, likes science and invites science here mm-hmm. to come and scrutinize itself. So, out of all the religions over 2,000 years, add those two things together, you're going to find the thing that has the most truth because it's those two things, skin in the game, ability to be scrutinized mm. and updated and over time. Um, and I've, I've used You could this, say that that's why Buddhism is true, isn't which it? Which might be coming, mate. <laughs> Season seven. Um, and I personally, I had a, had a, a battle, a war uh, professionally quite recently. And I, was I like, this, I like when, this I was, when, I was, when I was looking through these notes and I just saw dot point, AJ went to war. I don't know what this is, but I'm curious. Well, <laughs> yeah. So, is it, is, oh, without getting too technical. Um, <laughs> Mate, you're going to name drop someone as well? <laughs> no, I won't name them. Oh, I might actually. Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, uh, everyone was, there's ways of measuring sustainability in buildings. There's been one around for 20 years. It's called a life cycle analysis. And uh, it's, it's tried and tested. But then quite recently in 2020, uh, Melbourne University, I'll name them. Fuck it. Uh, they came up with this new method, which is so bloody complicated. It's insane. It's so academic. I've spent a day trying to read it. We hired consultants <laughs> to try and understand how to do it. Mm. And they were positioning themselves as so smart and so complex and found this new silver mm. bullet that the whole industry was actually moving towards towards them. And it was classic no skin in the game, mm. right? That's no time. And because it was so uh, difficult to understand and, and complex, had no skin, had no, didn't touch the earth whatsoever. Yeah. So, a recipe of disaster. So, that's what I quoted this book and used a lot of quotes and um, claimed Nassim yeah. Taleb's intellect in my yeah. uh, in my responses <laughs> with him. It was great. I, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, because he says that skin in the game brings simplicity because the, the people who are in the, uh, in the ivory tower or the people who are uh, behind the scenes doing all these scientific research and lab tests and whatever they're doing, but aren't actually building buildings, yeah, they can come up with all these complex things to justify their role. But if you think of the person who's actually out on the ground doing it, that complexity means nothing to them and it boils down to the simplest thing. So you do need that element of skin in the game to avoid that unnecessary intellectual wankiness for sure. Yes. I think he called intellectual yet idiot. Yeah, that's what the the the, the, the I Y I. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, Taleb mate, he did it again for me. Number moving on. Yeah, number one for me, nowhere near your top 10. Probably not even anywhere. How many books did it? 25? Well, probably your bottom five. The Now Habit by, I don't even know the author. <laughs> Neil something. Neil, Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> definitely not that <laughs> Definitely not that Neil, but some other Neil. Neil Fiore or something? Yeah, Neil Fiore, I reckon that's right. Yeah. I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have got that if you didn't prompt me. Uh, so I had, this, I had this idea. I was like, you know what? I want, I want to try to mix it up for the, uh, the listeners. I want to do two very opposite books. Um, the now habit and wait, and one saying avoid procrastination, and one saying actually procrastination is a good thing. Turns out the now habit wasn't really just about do it now, and wait turned out to be not that interesting. So we just got the now habit, mm. but I really liked it. He was just saying that the old definition of procrastination is that you procrastinate because you're lazy, and the way to get over that is to try harder or get more organized or just do it. But that's a very outdated uh, approach to an outdated definition. He's saying that. The, the twist here is that procrastination is actually a mechanism for coping with some kind of anxiety, um, the anxiety associated with starting or completing a task. 
Um, and it's a different definition. Like you don't just procrastinate because you're lazy. He says you procrastinate because you're probably worried about uh, if I don't do it right, it's not going to turn out well or if I, don't, if I start now, I'm not going to be able to get it done in time or there's some kind of anxiety you're worried about starting. So in the end, the easiest way out is to procrastinate and head to the couch and play some Donkey Kong. Um, that's a yeah more recent personal thing, but uh, there's some some way that you try to avoid that anxiety, and it's not just because you're lazy; it's because there's some bigger, deeper issue going on there. Yeah, it definitely uses reverse psychology compared to all of the other books that probably promotes a bit of guilt when you're trying to be productive, and you just you just can't you just can't do the David Allen system where you just there's just something in your brain that just stops doing it, even though you should be doing it. it happens all the bloody time, so it gives you techniques. Uh, which are very doable because they things you want to do. Like, for example, do not work more than 20 hours per week on this project. You know, mm. That's a, that's not. Or the unscheduled say, hey, I'm going to play Donkey Kong every day for <laughs> yeah, a couple that's of right. hours. Yeah, the, un, the unscheduled approach here is, he, is it normally my worst days uh, of productivity are the days where I've got nothing to do. And I think, oh, great, I've got all day to work. Generally, almost nothing gets done. Whereas the, the unscheduled, he says, if you schedule all the things that you want to do, um, schedule things like obviously meals and sleep and you've got to schedule the meetings and you can't avoid those. Um, if you're scheduling like your free time and your recreation and your leisure activities as well, he says, you know, schedule in an hour of exercise, whether that's a walk or a swim or playing golf or playing tennis, schedule that in. Schedule in that you want to go and hang out with a friend for 45 minutes at the cafe. Schedule in that you want to go and read a book for 30 minutes. Schedule in, um, you know, you want to do this uh, online course on the side. So you schedule in half an hour to study for that. Schedule in, oh yeah, I've got a doctor today, so I'll schedule that in. If you put all those schedules in place, you realize, actually, I don't have a whole day to work. I've only kind of got a couple of small windows here where I can actually do work. And all of a sudden, you don't just have all day to do everything, which you end up doing nothing. You've only got a small window to actually get shit done. And uh, counterintuitively, you're much more productive. So definitely very different to all the other productivity books. Um, it's not like you've read it before, this one. So not a bad book if you've read over 100 books in this in these genres. Yeah, I was expecting a uh, productivity book. We've done six or eight other ones that we won't get much out of here, but I like that it was a it was a different approach and it seemed to seemed to work well for me. I've got to get back on the unschedule, I reckon. It was it was really good for a while and then uh, a honeymoon and uh, Easter and all these things kind of threw the unschedule out the window. So I've got to get back on it. Man, I like how uh, quite recently in a lot of the books you've been reading, you've you've been doing it. Mm. And some of the books that I'm like, the hardest ones to actually do something from it, which is probably a good um, good good segue into what next season is. Mm. I'm able to drop one of them. Um, mm. uh, the full facts of cold reading. Mm. Man, weird weird bloody book. I'm Super like, weird. why is Ashley doing it? <laughs> but, Ridiculously like, weird. But so much value if you actually apply it and you actually you know get some neural pathways linking yeah. with that book, which you've been doing. You've been doing yeah. some cold reading. I can't wait. I mean, for it could it. be a, it could be a top. Top three potentially. We haven't obviously finished the next six months, but I'll call it early. I called early this one that the now habit could be top three. Mm. I'll also call early another one that uh, a book about cooking as well. I reckon could be my number one. Well, um, again, uh, I think it's probably a pretty shit book if you don't do anything mm, about it. Totally, which is probably for me, it'd be a ridiculous book. Like, there's no point Dumb. in reading it if Just you don't do it. Silly book to read. Yeah. Except if you're doing it, fantastic. Then, like you are, and we have to say what it is: the Four Hour Chef, mm. uh, which again, like. I haven't. I'm, it's probably one of those things. One year, I'll say, "Oh, I don't have a goal to do that." What is it? Twelve recipes or whatever, mm. Um, mm. which you've done. So, yeah. So, moving on to the the juggernauts of next month. Yeah, that's it. That's our top ten. That's our top ten. And uh, as we said, a month off now, and then back on July first. Mate, last time we didn't really we didn't really tease what was coming up. Should we tease uh, tease what's coming up? Maybe not actually. <laughs> Let's let all, you, all you know is it's called Juggernaut Month for a reason. There's going to be some juggernauts in there. The, the word juggernaut <laughs> used to have a pretty uh, specific definition. Now it's a loose definition. A loose juggernaut. What a juggernaut. Kind of, could be kind size of, of book. Could juggernauts. be name of. Could be name of author. Could be it's amount right. of Goodreads. Yeah. Don't know who Mitch Olbom is. Who's that? <laughs> it is massive. It's one of the biggest authors ever. Just not in our area. Is a is a fiction author and does does very well. Okay. Well, there's a few of them coming along. <laughs> hey, that's your mate. Is it? Is, did I, is that one of my books? Yeah. Hey, there he is right oh, there. Oh, that's... Uh, <laughs> gotcha. Mate, it could be one of the biggest Goodreads books we've ever done. Phenomenal book as well. I just remember the, uh, the, the, the character he writes about, yeah. not the actual author. <laughs> Mitch is a bit of a note. Sorry, Mitch, if you're listening. <laughs> don't know if he is. Uh, that's it, mate. That's uh, it. A tight... 
Uh, very not sloppy for a best of. Hmm. We'll see how how we go in six months if we're back on the back on the sloppy best of, or we keep it tight. May all got the juggernauts coming up. The ten I got lined up are probably up there with ten of my favorite books, man. So not sorry, not all ten, but some of them. Are, it's a very strong season coming up. Yeah, I reckon the I reckon the uh, the doing the top ten. There'll be a lot of honorable mentions, a lot of painful eleven through fourteen that don't make that cut. I reckon. Well, I think what's happened is because we get ahead of our reading schedule a bit. Mm. When we do that, you can be a bit more selective in the books you read. You're not because when we're when we used to be so doing uh, a book a week, mm. you'd be scrambling, and any book you get halfway through, you're not going to throw it away. Yeah, you just go. Right, we have to do this. Yeah, if you get definitely. far enough ahead, you can throw away three or four shitty books in a row. Yeah, and then you're just left with the good. Because you, you got skin in the game, you got time. That's right. That's right. You've, uh, you got consequence, <laughs> and then you end up with something better. Mate, my problem was we got too far ahead, and I, there was like eight books where I was like, oh, I set the bar too paradox high. Choice, it was like, mate. Par- it's too many. I was like, oh, this one's like it's all right, but it's not good enough. Maximizing, not satisfying. Yeah, great concept. Uh, from a book, the shit they never the, taught you. We came up right. with it, of course. We came up with a lot of ideas in that book. That's uh, right. But who cares who came up with the idea, actually? They're great ideas and there's a lot of them in this one book which you can get. That's it. The shit they never taught you. Dot com. Dot com. Yeah. See you in July. See you in July, everybody.